Bismillahirrahmanirrahim. Ve sallallahu ala seyyidina Muhammed ve ala alihi ve sahbihi ve sellem. Ya hubabeti, ya seyyideti, ya Fatima binti Resulillah. Salatullahi ve selamuhu al-etmani al-ekmelan. Ala abiki ve ummuki ve aleyki ve ala zawciki ve ala ibnayk ve ala men walakum lillah. O oh, my beloved, my lady, O oh, Fatima, daughter of Allah's messenger, may Allah's perfect and complete prayers and peace be upon your father, your mother, upon you, upon your husband and your two sons, and upon all those who devote their love and loyalty to you for the sake of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. Assalamu alaikum wa rahmatullahi wa barakatuh. Uh, welcome back to our class, Women on the Straight Path, uh, brought to you by Miss Women, the Muslim Institute for Sacred Knowledge. Uh, I'm Um Abdullah. Ahana wa sahlan. Uh, lovely to be in your company again. Alhamdulillah, wherever you are in the world at the moment. Um, so jazakallah khair for taking your time to come and join us. And inshallah, hopefully today uh, we will be able to explore some of the life of Sayyidah Nisa al-Alameen, the liege lady of all the women of the worlds of the Ummah and of Jannah, Fatima, the daughter of our beloved Prophet sallallahu alayhi wa sallam, and we give her the honorific Fatima bint uh, Muhammad alayhi salam. May peace be upon her. The usual class etiquettes, inshallah, women only, and particularly because we're talking about Sayyidah Fatima and mashallah, she was really the greatest of modesty. She embodied modesty in every single thing that she did. And inshallah, one of our goals uh, that we will discuss inshallah is to take a portion of that for ourselves. So by having classes that are just for us, for us women inshallah, uh, we have a comfortable and uh, free and open space to be able to talk about uh, those things which affect us directly inshallah and to be able to practice those things um, no recording or screenshots as we've mentioned before and questions and comments at the end inshallah our intention for learning and teaching from the great Imam Haddad inshallah we will read that in Arabic and then in English in order to focus and direct our attention our thoughts and our limbs on our class at the moment. Bismillahirrahmanirrahim. Nawaitu ta'alamu wa ta'alim wa tadakkura wa tadkir wa nafa' wal intifa' wal ifadata wal istifada wal hatha ala tamassuki bi kitabillahi wa sunnati rasulihi sallallahu alayhi wa sallam wa dua ilal huda wa dalalata ala al khair ibtigha wajahillahi wa mardatihi wa kurbihi wa thawabihi subhanahu wa ta'ala amin in the name of Allah most gracious most merciful I intend to learn and teach to remember and remind to benefit myself and to benefit others to derive usefulness and extend it to others, to encourage adherence to the book of Allah and the sunnah of his messenger sallallahu alayhi wa sallam, to call to guidance and direct towards good, seeking thereby the countenance, pleasure, proximity and reward of Allah, the absolutely transcendent and most exalted. Amen. You may have noticed already that we seem to have a bit of a theme of white flowers here. Um, when I was thinking, oh, what am I going to do for this uh, PowerPoint and trying to think of some type of uh, theme or 
um, some type of expression that would perhaps link us to Sayyidah Fatima, I honestly couldn't think of anything except white flowers. So I think white flowers really have in them a type of uh, purity and uh, essence and some something otherworldly about them, inshallah. Uh, so I hope you enjoy that. And uh, that's that's all I could think of from a creative point of view. But alhamdulillah, I think it uh, suits uh, the lady of our uh, presentation today, inshallah, for her purity, her modesty, her chastity, uh, her perfected akhlaq, her perfected character and virtue, and the fact that she is the mother of uh, the exalted and purified prophetic house, uh, the house of the Prophet Sallallahu Alaihi Wasallam, the house of the Ahlul Bayt, um, the progeny she's of the Prophet Alayhi Salatu Wasallam, she's the mother of them all. So inshallah, it uh, helps us focus on those aspects of her as well, inshallah. Today's class, inshallah, we're going to um, try and discuss something related to these three points. and. Uh, the first of them is how do we relate to Sayyidah Fatima alayhi salam and then inshallah we'll look at a brief biography of some highlights from her life uh, inshallah alayhi salam and then inshallah if we have time I just wanted to talk a little bit about some of the scholarly works uh, that have been produced over the centuries with regards to her and her blessed story and even the hadith uh, that she transmitted and that have been recorded from her. You might think looking at this uh, uh, organization here of these topics that wouldn't it be better if we actually studied her biography a little bit first, like the events of her life, and then we sort of began to analyze that and think, well, um, you know, how do we relate to that aspect of her story? And remember when we said that, and how about uh, that part and what lessons can we draw from that? And of course, that's uh, totally good and valid and useful and that's fine. But what I wanted to do, and I guess sort of what some of our overarching goals are when we do something like try and study these women and uh, women on the straight path and try and extract something from their stories that will benefit us uh, and what I'm sort of trying to put forward through all this is resetting and reframing uh, our cognitive approach just as much as we need to reset and reframe the approach that our hearts take towards studying these lives and uh, receiving the information and the knowledge and the light, inshallah, that we do from their stories. And I think it's uh, helpful in that case, if that's our goal, uh, to talk first of all about uh, how do we approach her? So how do we, um, how do we relate to her as a human being who lived a very long time ago, 14 centuries? And what is it that we need to, uh, to understand about her and to, to get uh, from our studying through uh, sorry, what we need to get from our studying uh, her life. And so if we talk about these cognitive frameworks, which is a, a phrase that Dr. Omar, that he uh, uses specifically to talk about the way in which we approach um, anything that we're studying, and particularly as Muslims, what we're really referring to is our thinking. So how do we think about these topics? And at the moment, in this particular historical point in time, and if you look at our intellectual climate, and the way in which 
we are taught uh, through this modern and postmodern world that we live in to think. The way that we're taught to approach knowledge and to approach our very being in this world, um, I would say is, is somewhat in a rather serious crisis at the moment. And that's because we, even though we're believers, even though we're Muslims, we're not always, because of this intellectual environment that we grow up in and we are bombarded with on a daily basis, we don't approach things from the point of view of seeking the truth, but rather we approach things from a skeptical or a critical point of view. And so our questioning, when we come from that angle, is directed towards looking to have our doubts and our skepticism and our suspicions confirmed. So this is completely different to when you try and question and approach something, seeking what is good and positive and whole and true about it. So what we do is we look at things in a very piecemeal or fragmented way, and we look at it informed by a cognitive framework which tries to see the fault um, in what we're looking at, whatever our topic might be. And the fault that we're looking for in this postmodern world is faults that are generated through power relations between people and institutions. And we're looking at how we can uh, not just come to it from a perspective which is looking for and trying to critique those relations, but the questions that we are taught to ask are about confirming what those faults are. And once those faults are confirmed and the negativity is confirmed, then we feel satisfied that we've learned something and satisfied that we've now actually grasped the content of whatever it is that we're examining and trying to understand. And the problem with that is that it never leads to contentment. It never leads to um, any type of harmony or deep connection, but rather what it leads to is a fragmentation of ourselves. It leads to a type of darkness and misery because we have only approached it from a negative point of view and that we don't uh, seek to understand things for, for the positives and for the good and for the ultimate truth that might be in that particular subject matter. So I say that because, uh, as I said, we're in a state of crisis um, and our way of thinking is really, really uh, backwards at the moment and we think like we, we do. I mean, we don't think in a way that's commensurate with what our intellectual faculties can actually do and what they have been made for, which that our mind, our akal, combined with our fitra, with our primordial disposition, have been given to us as gifts by Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala to enable us to use them to reach the truth, to reach an understanding of the truth and marifatullah, which is the ultimate knowledge of God himself. And so we need to think all the time, okay, how am I approaching something? Um, how am, what are the frameworks that I'm using which will either help me do that or what am I using which is actually preventing me from reaching and seeking that truth. So when I've put here first of all this concept of how do we relate to Sayyidah Fatima Salam, uh, that's where we're coming from. Okay, so we approach the study of her biography and the events that happened in her life from that point of view. What is it that we're looking for when we talk about how do we relate to her? And there are two main aspects of that, connection and emulation. So we want to connect to her 
And then once we have established a connection with her, meaning that we've understood who she is, what her rank is, um, and the position that she held, not only in her lived material life here in this lower world in this dunya, but also the position and rank that she holds in the akhirah, in the next life, and that she will hold eternally, and that she was actually uh, created for. So we need to look at what her station is and how to connect to that. And then, of course, uh, how do we emulate this incredible woman? You know, how do we uh, adopt uh, some aspects of herself and adapt and change ourselves to be a little bit more like her, a little bit more purified, a little bit more wholesome, um, or a lot, Yani, but, you know, we start with a little bit. And how do we, as women in our lifetime, um, how do we spend our time and our actions and our ways to try and become like her as much as we possibly can? And the first thing when we discuss uh, about her, about connecting to her, is that we have to understand that Sayyidah Fatima was actually a heavenly creature. So she was Hurani, which so you know about Hurul Ain, who are the um, heavenly and divine creatures. So these special creatures who are, who are like the, the, the beauties, um, I guess it, traditionally or from an orientalist type of language, they'd be called the maidens of paradise. Although uh, I think there's probably better words than that, but in our English religious uh, literature and terminology, which is uh, very heavily influenced by uh, Christian type of language and uh, material concepts, that come through other traditions, the Judeo-Christian tradition, then we have words which I don't think would really be like that in Arabic. They don't really have that meaning. But anyway, she was definitely a creature of paradise, a heavenly creature. And Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala sent her uh, to this earth for a very short period of time, for uh, only a maximum of uh, 28 years. So. She was uh, born and she was created to uh, pass through this life to show us, uh, the women of this ummah, the characteristics and features and what it means for prophethood and prophecy to be manifested in a female form. So just as her blessed father, uh, sallallahu alayhi wa sallam, was of course uh, the prophet for all of mankind and rahmatullil alameen, the mercy for all the worlds, and he is the most obvious and eminent example of prophethood, but he happens to be male. And so as females, it's like, well, how do we really understand what it is for us then? Because of course we can have male role models and, and we do, we have lots of male role models, but women also have their own thing that men don't have. You know, women are the bearers of life and women have a different role when it comes to nurturing and, and all those things. So. How do we be women inside of this world of um, prophethood, in this world of Tawheed, uh, in this world of uh, love and yearning and seeking Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala? So that's the role of Sayyidah Fatima alayhi salam. So she's a heavenly creature who came to show us how to be heavenly creatures whilst we're here in this material world. So Habib Omar, our, uh, our scholar, our murabbi, Allah yahfadhu, he was asked recently, but how do we connect to her? So, you know, we can talk about connection, but what, what does that actually mean? And he said that you have to connect to her rank 
or her station. So when you understand what her rank or her station is, then you're able to understand who she is and seek to make that connection to this person on a very, very high level. And so her rank or station is exactly that, that the Prophet ﷺ told her that she is the the leader of all the women in this ummah. There are a couple of different narrations, but he said in the one that's narrated by Sayyida Aisha, he said that you are the leader of the women of this ummah, um, the leader of the women in this world. That's who she is in this material world. And in another one, it said that you are the leader of the women in paradise. And so that's her rank. And so when we understand that, then inshallah, we can see that she isn't just somebody who's a story in history that we look at and go, oh, wow, that's really amazing. But in fact, that there is a very, very deep um, point at which we have to allow our hearts and our souls to experience what it might mean for us to connect to another heart and soul to another being that's actually been uh, created to show us how to be heavenly whilst we're here um, and uh, that's uh, what it means to be connected to her station how do we understand that we understand that because the prophet said that fatima bid'atun minni that fatima is a part of me so one of the reasons why he loved her uh, so much and nurtured her in the way that he did was because of course he understood who she was and her rank and her importance um, in history and to the women of the ummah he said that to show that she was the one who was the closest to him and he said that what angers her angers me or what harms her harms me there are also a number of different narrations what pleases her pleases me so she was very much a part of him. And of course, we know his rank. And if we don't, then we need to work on that and we need to understand his life more and who he was. Uh, and uh, really, really lift our understanding and our level of knowledge about him, and about Sayyidah Fatima, because she was the one who was there through the entire seerah, through the entire period of uh, revelation until after he passed away. She lived through the whole thing every single day. Um, she was the closest to him. She was the one who resembled him the most. And she passed away only six months after him on the 2nd of Ramadan um, in the 11th year of the Hijrah. So it's a very, very sad thing for a Muslim woman to pass through this life and not know this amazing and incredible and heavenly woman. A very, very sad thing. And even worse than that is for a Muslim woman to pass through this life and not only not know about her, which perhaps a person may be excused for, but what isn't really excusable and which is going to be very, very hard for a person to defend is when they are standing before Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala and when their life is flashing before them and they are being questioned and all their deeds are being accounted for when they realize that they should have understood and followed her and that will be the one of the saddest and most miserable and regretful moments in the life of any Muslim woman because we've had our entire lifetime as long or as short as it is to know her to understand her and to try and emulate her and if we don't do that then the regret on that day will be uh, deeper and more terrible than anything else so how do we emulate her and 
But this really consists of four parts, and this is also advice um, that uh, Habib Umar has uh, given us, alhamdulillah, uh, through his own daughter who taught us this, um, Ustad Zainab. And there are, there are four aspects of emulation uh, that we should bear in mind and seek to follow, inshallah. So there are two that are inward forms. And the first of those is to be pleased, to be radia, to be pleased and content with what Allah has decreed. Because as we will see throughout her life, when we look at a part of her story and some of her story, is that she came from a family with very little materially, but obviously with an abundance of uh, spiritual wealth. And so she was always pleased with that and she was never known to have complained or to have thought that she had suffered in life due to a lack of material means. And this was both uh, before and after she was married. So in her family home and her marital home, uh, she lived a very, very humble and uh, simple uh, lifestyle. So we need to be pleased with, Allah, with what Allah has decreed for us. Um, and, uh, and, and to really, really bear that in mind when we look at our own situation. And then the second inward state, which actually has an outward manifestation, is modesty. So when a person is modest on the inside and they're modest in their heart, it means that they have taqwa, they have a fear of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala and a consciousness of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala and that this is the very state that guides and directs them and their actions. So when a person has that modesty and they know that they are in front of Allah and that he is looking at them, then that will help them choose how they're going to conduct themselves through their limbs. And so a, a person, a woman who has modesty inside, then her outside will also be a reflection of that. So they're, they're the two inward states that we need to emulate in her, being pleased with what Allah has decreed for us and having an inner state with its outer manifestation of taqwa and modesty. And then when it comes specifically to outward actions and things that we do to emulate her, then the third piece of advice is to raise our children well. Um, and that means raising our children, I mean that's a huge topic as everybody would know, but of course raising our children to be believers and lovers of Allah and not disbelievers and lovers of this dunya. So that it is very, very bare bones would be something like that. Um, and uh, to know too that even if we don't have our own children, then to contribute to that in the lives of other people and to really be a part of fulfilling this amana, this trust, of raising the next generations, whether we be teachers at a school or in the community or our own nieces and nephews or whoever they may be, um, that inshallah we uh, really take that responsibility to, to be a, a parent in that sense to the children around us and to guide them and to not think, oh, that's the responsibility of this one and that one. Um, when perhaps those responsibilities are not being met by those other people, but to see what we can do to be a positive contributor to the lives of the next generation so that, inshallah, they get this deen in the way that they're meant to and they become the bearers of it and, inshallah, pass it on to those who come after them. And then the fourth piece of advice is to make the, the Fatimiyah dhikr before you sleep. So that's to say you lie down on your right side, 
preferably in a state of wudu if you can manage it and you say 33 times before you sleep subhanallah alhamdulillah allahu akbar that you read that before you sleep and then inshallah you will sleep and it's known that that is uh, mujarrab it uh, works it's something um, which will uh, guarantee you to have a good sleep even if your sleep is very very brief and inshallah you will wake up refreshed from that inshallah so this is our basic framework that we want to take and apply to our um, study of the biography of the life of Sayyidah Fatima inshallah and not just to hear stories and think oh you know that's really nice and let me just have you know a bit of a half an hour now where I can sit back and hear a nice couple of stories and go back to the rest of my life but no to think okay how am I going to listen um, to these stories which have been passed on from generation to generation for literally for 14 centuries and what am I going to do with this knowledge what am I going to do with these stories am I going to let them go in one ear and out the other or am I going to think okay how do I connect to this woman and how do I emulate her based on these four points which are quite clear and straightforward I think and uh, how how am I going to make her life and story work for me inshallah and may Allah give us tawfiq okay I'm taking I just want to share some books and things I'm taking uh, most of this story from this particular book Inna Fatima to Zahra um, by Sheikh Muhammad Abdul Yamani who passed away um, 2010 and uh, he was a uh, he was born in Mecca and he also passed away there he uh, was a, a scientist in agricultural sciences but he was what is called a huge muhib so he was a a lover of the Ahlul Bayt of the prophetic household he had a tremendous love for the prophet and for his family and he wrote over 40 books uh, mostly on seerah and uh, some of his titles include how to teach your children love of the prophet how to teach your children uh, love of the ahlul bayt the prophetic household and how to teach your children love of the sahaba uh, so he really was concerned with educating people not just about stories but also about how to connect and how to emulate and it's quite a long book about 300 pages and it really is a book of literature as well so he's uh, written like a whole uh, literary history I mean history in a literary way it's all stories it's all very um, very rich language so for someone like me it's kind of not exactly straightforward reading because there's uh, lots of uh, language there which is you know used in literature it's not sort of everyday language or normal textual language that you'll get when you're reading some of the sciences and things like that so it's a really really beautiful book um, I don't think it's been fully translated yet although it may be I think it's been translated into Malay I think I'm not quite sure I did start to translate it once a few years ago but didn't get very far with it so inshallah we'll see what happens inshallah um so what's really important too is that when we look at the story of Sayyidah Fatima as I said she's there from the beginning so as we said last week about Sayyidah Khadija the question was you know how do we remember her and then the answer to that was well we don't really need to remember her as such because she's never been forgotten because it's in her house that Islam was cultivated, developed and her household was like the cradle of Islam. And so just now we look at Sayyidah Fatima, 
السلام, her daughter who was raised who was the only child of the Prophet السلام, who actually lived through the whole of the rest of his lifetime from the revelation on and passing away after him so in her is the entire seerah is a whole story and so she's woven into every single aspect of it in some way or another and in one of the most profound ways is because she was the closest to the heart of her father uh, may Allah's peace and blessings be upon him and because he loved her more than anyone else and he was actually asked Um, who is the most uh, hub who is the one who is most beloved to you and he said uh, Fatima and then some of the scholars have said well in another narration another hadith uh, he was asked that same question and he said uh, Aisha um, because her father was the most beloved to him Sayyidina Abu Bakr Siddiq and so was she the most beloved wife But then it's reconciled by saying that of his own immediate family that Fatima was the most beloved to him and Aisha of course was his wife but from another family and so she was the closest to him from those um, who were outside his immediate uh, circle there. So Sayyidah Fatima السلام, bint Muhammad, she was born five years before the revelation and this is very significant because she was born in a year Um, when the Prophet ﷺ was 35 years old and she was the uh, fourth daughter and the youngest child of the Prophet ﷺ, the youngest daughter and she was born um, at exactly the time when the Quraysh were rebuilding the Kaaba so it had been destroyed I think by some weather conditions and it needed to have parts of it rebuilt and restructured and so they had set about doing this and when the time came to replace uh, or sorry to put the black stone back in its place then there was a dispute because each of the tribes wanted to have the honor of placing the black stone the sacred black stone in the corner of the Kaaba in which it had been and so they had begun to uh, they'd begun to fight about this and got to the point where it was getting quite serious and potentially quite violent and so someone a wise person amongst them said okay let's let's wait and the first person who enters now the sacred precincts then we're going to um, ask that person to decide and work out what we're going to do uh, with this and help us And so they said, okay, they all agreed to that. And they look over and in walks the Prophet ﷺ. And so they were very, very pleased with that because they said, oh, this is Al-Amin, the trustworthy one. This is Muhammad ibn Abdullah al-Hashimi. They said, we are pleased and satisfied with his wisdom and good judgment because he was known amongst all the people of his time and all the people of Quraysh to be the one who was Sadiq and Mastuk, the one who told the truth and who was believed. And this is way before revelation when he was known for these characteristics. They called him over and told him what had happened and he called for a cloth. And so he placed the black stone on the cloth and he told each of the four tribes that they must each take a corner and lift it um, up to the place into which, uh, equal to the place where it would be put in then he picked it up and he was the one who actually put the black stone in that corner and this is extremely significant because uh, it's at the at that time when they were rebuilding the the Beit Allah the house of Allah on the earth 
and then it was that day even it said when Sayyidah Fatima was born and that she was the rook and she was the pillar she was the one who would from her be built the prophetic household which is continuing on until now so the Ahl al-Bayt the people of the prophetic household and he had left that morning left the house and Khadija Sayyidah Khadija it said to him that she was starting to feel like the birth might be imminent so she had had some early labor pains and of course it was on his mind and after this event at the Kaaba he rushed back home and found that she had indeed given birth and it was to their daughter uh, Fatima and he was very very pleased and uh, Sayyidah Aisha said that I've never seen any one of Allah's creation who resembled the Prophet more in speech and action than Fatima and Umm Salama one of the other wives of the Prophet said of all people Fatima was the one who most resembled the Prophet in appearance Um, and he was very very pleased and it's known that prophets usually have daughters they're not known for having a great number of sons and this is interesting too because um, we see that of all the people who come with a divine message then and Allah he, he knows what's in the arham he knows what he has created and, and who people uh, you know what they'll give birth to whether it be male or female and he's always blessed his prophets with daughters so as for her names um, she has many and Fatima was a name that was known at the time um, as we saw last week she had a grandmother called Fatima who was the mother of Sayyidah Khadija and also uh, the wife of Abi Talib um, the mother of Sayyidina Ali so this woman who would uh, become her mother-in-law her name was Fatima bint Asad and also uh, her cousin Fatima bint Hamza so um, so Sayyidina Hamza also had a daughter called Fatima so it was a, a fairly well-known name uh, she's also called Zahra, which has a few different meanings as well and it's known that um, something which has a lot of names is an indication of the fact of the sharaf of the honor of the thing that is being named of the musamma and the fact that Sayyidah Fatima had so many names shows that shows that she's somebody who held a tremendous rank so a Zahra has two or more meanings some people say it's because she was Zahrat al-Mustafa she was like the flower of um, her father so this uh, really blessed and joyful and blooming flower but others say it comes from the word to mean radiant or like a kind of white light and that's the same like Al-Azhar the university in Egypt that comes from the same uh, root letters she was known to be extremely radiant and she was known to be quite different from the women of her time uh, she was also called Al-Siddiqa, um, Al-Mubaraka, Al-Tahira, Al-Radiya, Al-Mardiya and all these reflected different states of her truthfulness, um, of her blessing, of her purity, of her contentment and of her tranquility that she experienced. And one of the other names which they call the crown of all her names is that she was called Al-Batul and Al-Batul is a name that was given to Sayyidatna Maryam uh, the mother of Sayyidina Isa Jesus and Al-Batul by calling her that it puts her on the same rank or on the same level and there is a bit of a dispute between scholars like 
Um, who's better? Okay, because they talk about who are the women, the leaders of women in paradise. And then some hadith mention Maryam and some mention Fatima. And so there's something that's said about which of them is actually higher in rank. And so Sayyida Maryam, of course, is extremely high in rank because she had the what's called the Immaculate Birth, Immaculate Conception. Uh, she was uh, really at the rank of uh, prophethood herself. And we'll talk about her another time, inshallah. But to be called al-Batul meant that she was very much on the same rank as Sayyida Maryam. So there's different opinions on that. To be al-Batul means that she was very distinct from the rest of the women of her time and even from the rest of the women of the Ummah. And she was distinct from them in virtue, in her deen, and in her rank, and in her chastity. And she had to be different and distinct because she's a leader. She's a lead lady of all the women. And Batul means that she is detached from this worldly life. That's the actual definition of it. So there's the definition and then there's the characteristics or the sifat of it. So the definition is that to be al-Batul, you have to be detached from this worldly life and attached to Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. And how does that manifest? In those characteristics that we've just said. And then the other name, which is also really important, is that she was called Um Abiha, which means the mother of her father. And I remember going to Tarim the first time and going to Darul Zahra, uh, which is named after her, which is the uh, women's institute there, part of Darul Mustafa, and where the women and the girls go uh, to learn. And the name of the musalla of the prayer room in Darul Zahra is um, the musalla Um Abiha. The, the mother of her father and I remember that and I had never heard this before and so I remember that going there and I saw this um, kind of a plaque uh, on the on the wall with the name of, of the Musalla and I'm standing there going Um Abiha I'm like what does that mean and then I'm thinking oh maybe I've read it wrong so I'm trying to I'm looking and I'm thinking maybe I've just read it wrong maybe I don't understand but what on earth does it mean to be the mother of your father or in this case, the mother of her father. And I just didn't know what on earth that was talking about. And I found it very confusing because I'd never studied the life of Sayyida Fatima prior to that. And so this is a name that the Prophet ﷺ had actually given her when she was young, a teenager, and after Sayyida Khadija had passed away because she took the role of supporting him, her father, the way that her mother had done. And she did look after him, but she really was the pillar of support for his heart. And she gave him the strength that he needed to continue in that very difficult year of sadness, which is when uh, she, uh, uh, Sayyida Khadija had passed away and uh, Abu Talib, um, his uncle. And when, of course, the uh, pressure and the violence from the Quraysh uh, was continuing and hadn't yet subsided. And in fact, it never really did until the very end. Uh, so, and as I said, that names are not given out of uh, some type of vanity or they're not given without any type of meaning. Uh, but in fact, a very a serious and important thing in our religion um, as Muslims is that we give things their proper name. And uh, naming people is a very important part. It's actually considered one of the rights of the child is that it's given a proper name with a good meaning and that it's named after honorable people. Um, men or women and that it's uh, given something of virtue 
and distinction because you hope that by naming the child after virtuous people that inshallah the child will take a portion of those qualities uh, that you have um, of that person that you've named them after and of course I don't think there's one family in the last 14 centuries uh, particularly of the prophetic household that has not named their first newborn son Muhammad or their first daughter Fatima uh, so unless of course the parents have those names uh, but then um, they might give another name but there, there's always a Fatima and there's always a Muhammad um, in every single family Alhamdulillah and that's so that people can take the blessing uh, of those names inshallah Sayyidah Fatima had quite a difficult childhood after the age of five because uh, it was at that point when her father uh, received the revelation when he was 40 years old uh, he was 35 when she was born and 40 when the revelation first came and it, of course it completely changed her world and so she had lived in this household of um, of love and spirituality and joy and she had her big sisters and she had her mom and she had all her extended family and then all of a sudden things started to change and so she was very very young when she began to witness this and so she saw now that the conversation had changed the feelings had changed there was tension uh, there were issues there was a lot of upset people in the house talking about the bad behavior of those around them and what was going on so this all of a sudden her perfect world had uh, changed significantly and of course when she was about say eight years old the famous story of uh, when her father had gone to the Kaaba inside the sacred precincts to go and pray and Abu Jahl who was one of the greatest enemies saw this and he knew that the camel had been slaughtered uh, just recently in the last hour or so on the outskirts of Mecca so he sent people to go off and to bring back the camel's entrails and so the um, the guts and the intestines and the, the innards of a camel uh, were then uh, dumped uh, very unceremoniously upon the back and between the shoulders um, of the Prophet وسلم, when he was uh, in sujood when he was prostrating and so he didn't actually see the people who had done that or plotted it and Sayyidah Fatima had been around she had followed him to the area and she saw this and so she ran over and she uh, pulled this um, stuff this horrible stuff off his back and she tried to clean him up as best as she could and she was calling out and she was making dua against them and very very upset about what she had seen and so when the Prophet uh, finished his prayer because he didn't let it stop him but he finished it and he knew by name who had done this and he called out their names and he made dua against them and within a decade they were all dead except for one who later became Muslim um, when uh, Mecca the conquest of Mecca um, several years later so the thing we need to learn from that too is that dua is not always answered immediately because all those who we named were killed in the battle of Badr and that was probably you know at least 15 years or perhaps 13 years after that had happened so he he made that dua but it didn't get answered until later and there was still a lot of difficulty that they faced so when we think about the people now who are harming the Muslims 
and uh, you know on a huge global scale and the things that are going on we have to be patient and we have to know that this has all been written for us just as these things were written for the prophet and we need to make good and proper dua and we always pray that allah guides those who out of their ignorance dislike us that's the first thing and if it is that he's not going to guide them take away their harm well first of all take away their harm and guide them and not let us get upset and affected by these people and allah will deal with them however he deals with them okay so our job is to be strong our job is to try and keep ourselves together and not let these things make us weak but rather to derive strength from the fact knowing that Allah is on our side that we have the Prophet and his example and that everything is actually going okay and how it's meant to be going for us but we need to respond properly to it so the thing about Sayyidah Fatima is that she taught us even from that age from when she was very very young like you know under 10 years old how to handle really really difficult and abusive and violent situations because that's what she was experiencing despite the trauma that she was going through and these were traumatic experiences and she had also been a part obviously of um, when they were boycotted and when they were exiled the Muslims and sent on the mountain starving for three years and she saw her mother pass away after that um, from illness and from exhaustion and she had a wisdom that was beyond her years and the reason why she was one of the reasons why she was so wise is because she was nurtured in a household of wisdom she was nurtured in a household where she wasn't brought up thinking that her happiness that her well-being and that her status in this life was inherently connected to her material status or her material um, standards but rather what was her value in life was the state of her heart her connection to Allah and her service to her father and to this message of Islam so when a person is established on that foundation then their response to difficulties is going to be completely different to the person who just feels shaken by some type of attack on their material or superficial uh, lifestyle or the things that they are attached to of the superficial and temporary things of this world and that's really really something that she teaches us and when we look at their own raising of our children and the types of things that we've connected their hearts to um, inadvertently or just because we don't know any better or that's just the way it is then we need to rethink that and rethink the consequences of that because difficult times always come in life we never know what we're going to face tomorrow and if we haven't instilled in them that really strong foundation that spiritual foundation then we are uh, not really helping them um, later on and, and that will be manifested so when she migrated so after the prophet had migrated and she stayed back in mecca with her sister um kulthum and then later um, the prophet sent zaid ibn haritha and uh, someone else to come and pick them up and so they were riding on camels and they were making their 400 kilometer 400 plus kilometers journey back to um, medina and there was a sick man from the mushrikeen from the polytheists who came and he attacked their camels and so he started to try and strike the camels down and kill them and he injured the camels and they fell and then fatima and her sister fell off 
and she was injured, uh, quite a bad injury. And her sister Umkulthum was uh, also injured and it was said that she had had some type of, now we would call it hemorrhaging or some type of internal bleeding um, as a result of that. And so this is direct assault. This is Islamophobia at its, at its finest, isn't it? I mean, that's what we'd call it today. Um, this is an extreme violation of her because of who she was and because of her religion, her sister as well. And, um, but they survived and they went back. And the Prophet والسلام, uh, heard about this. He was extremely distraught to see his daughters turn up like that in this state. So her time in Medina was completely different. Of course, there wasn't the harassment um, that they experienced in Mecca and it was much more peaceful. And she was there right by the side of her blessed father who was establishing Islam now on a, on a community level and on a state level. So he was negotiating often in, in war or in conflict with other tribes who were trying to fight them and drive them out and conflict with them. So this was more now more into the level of statehood and really developing this, um, this nation of Islam, this ummah of Islam, um, this faith ummah. And so she saw that and she was with him and she experienced all his struggles and everything that he went through. And then of course came the time for her to get married and she had uh, great companions uh, try to seek her hand, but the Prophet ﷺ, he refused all of them, including Sayyidina uh, Omar and Sayyidina Abu Bakr. Then he, he had someone, he knew already, and it was said before that he'd actually said before Sayyidina Ali and Sayyidina Fatima got married, that they were married in the heavens before they were married on earth. This is one of the, the hadith. Sayyidina Abu Bakr and Sayyidina Omar went to Sayyidina Ali and they said, why don't you go and propose? Because you're the one closest in rank of family. You know, you're the one who would be the best match for her. And Sayyidina Ali was extremely shy and because he had grown up in their household and also he didn't have any money. So he, he didn't know how he was going to ask for her hand in marriage when he didn't have anything and everyone knew that he didn't have anything. But he finally went and he greeted the Prophet ﷺ and he sat with him and the Prophet knew that he wanted to say something. And so uh, finally all he managed to say was, I was just thinking about Fatima. And the Prophet ﷺ, he knew that this was a proposal for her and he said, oh, ahlan, sahlan, marhaban, so welcome, that's very good. And then Sayyidina Ali left because he was so shy he couldn't speak about it. Uh, but he, he knew that, that he had been accepted, that the proposal uh, was accepted. And so afterwards the Prophet ﷺ came to him and said, well, what have you got to get married with? Because he knew he was so poor. And he said, well, I have my, some say his horse, others say his sword. He has his sword and the, or, or his horse. And the Prophet ﷺ said, well, you need that. So keep that. What else do you have? And he said, what about that dira, which is that armor? or that shield that I'd given you, where's that? And he said, oh, I have it. He said, sell it and then buy what you need. And so he sold it for 480 dirhams to Sayyidina Uthman ibn Affan. And he paid for the wedding and the dowry. And he bought uh, gifts for Fatima and he furnished the house. 
and it's really really important and this is always mentioned to notice what this couple who were the finest and most dignified and highest ranking couple in this dunya and the akhirah what they had in their house when they got married and what their wedding consisted of and subhanallah the house the way that it was furnished so this is the daughter of the the best man the most perfected human being ever and this is his daughter who is the female version of him and this is her marriage so what on earth would she be given when she gets married and they had a very tiny house which was far from him which he didn't really want that because he always wanted her close but all they could get was a small little house that was a bit far away so they went there and Sayyidina Ali furnished the floor with fine sand, not with a carpet, not with a kilim, not with a woven mat that covered the whole floor, just a mat that covered a part of the floor and the rest of the floor was sand. So can you imagine getting married and going to a tiny little room with sand on the floor? And you know, imagine saying that to your daughter who's about to get married, this is what you're gonna get. They had uh, sand on the floor for the carpet there were two water skins, there were two mills for milling uh, grain and making flour and there was a rope that had been hung between two sticks and that rope was for them to hang their clothes and things on and that was it. There was a, a small woven mat which they slept on and a pillow which was also woven and stuffed with palm fronds. So extremely extremely basic provision. And one third of the money went on perfume oils. So there's one story that I want to actually mention which is really important to us now uh, with regards to that. And that's the story of the night before the wedding. There was like a, a, a pen or a little yard that had been made and some camels were there which were going to be slaughtered for the wedding feast. And there were some uh, people outside, some men who'd been drinking as the, the, the final abolition of, of hamar of wine hadn't yet been revealed and so some people were still drinking and they got so drunk and rowdy and something happened between them and one of them came and actually cut off the hump of one of the camels and so Sayyidina Ali came out and he saw what had happened and then it was at that point that the final revelation of the banning or the prohibition of alcohol was sent down. Now the reason why this is uh, so significant is, well there are a few reasons, but one of them is that this completely pure, sanctified and heavenly marriage was not going to go ahead in a society that was affected by and poisoned by alcohol and intoxicating substances. So it's as though Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala had wanted to purify the ummah, purify the Muslims of the lowest of filth of which alcohol is one of those substances in order that this um, heavenly marriage could go ahead and in order that this marriage and their offspring would be born into the purest of all societies. So that's one aspect of it. And another aspect of it which I find really interesting is that if you look at 
the history of uh, modern feminism, which began around uh, 1860 in that time. And if you look at the arguments that those women who are advocating for the rights of women and for getting a proper family law in place where they could um, have rights to custody and proper divorce laws and uh, and, and basically have established for them a, a proper uh, system in which women could have their rights as women and wives and mothers, one of the first and most important arguments that they put forward was that alcohol needed to be restricted or banned because of its um, extremely negative impact on the family. And so not just on the men who were the drinkers, women probably drank a little bit too, sort of in that Victorian uh, England, but obviously not as much as much as the men. It was sort of a, a man's activity, and they would come home drunk. They would come home and abuse the children, the wife. It destroyed their emotional relationships, their parenting, and of course, it destroyed families financially because all the money would go on the Friday night or whatever night at the pub drinking. And so women wanted its use and its sale regulated as a means of protecting women and families. And this I find really significant because the first thing that's known to destroy a family is alcohol or other uh, um, addictive substances. Like now we have many more drugs than that, but of course it's known the terrible impact that this has. And so on that same night uh, or the night before the wedding, then that was also banned. And I find that really, really important. And it shows the relevance of these events in history to our time today. So we just have to try and look to see these connections. And sometimes they're presented to us um, in the most obvious way. So Sayyidina Ali, he uh, was her husband and he wasn't there very often. But that didn't seem to bother Sayyidina Fatima very much because there's something that she said the morning after their wedding when the Prophet ﷺ went to visit them and, and he asked her, he said, sorry, he asked Sayyidina Ali first and he said, how, how do you find your new family? And he said, oh, she is the best one to help me in my ta'a, in my acts of obedience. And then he said to her, how do you find your new uh, family? And she said, oh, he is the best of men. And so immediately what was established in their household was a good relationship between the husband and the wife and what she did and what her role as the wife was and what our role as wives is is to help our husbands and assist them in their spiritual life so not only do we need to be there and in more material things or domestic things or whatever and you know take those roles seriously our, our um, nurturing roles but we also need to be nurturers of our husband and our children, of course, of their spiritual selves. And this is really important and also something which I think we don't focus on enough um, in our time is um, what role do we have there and how do we fulfill that? Because we're often too busy with our own selves. So we're either in a state of neglect where we don't really have any spiritual life or we're struggling with it or we're so busy trying to get our dhikr and our salah and our classes and all the things that we do that we might overlook um, that of our husband. So they're the ones who are also out there living um, a life of service to their family by providing, uh, by being 
active in the community and by doing the things that they do but also there's the inner life which they share with us at home our private life with them which inshallah we need to base on the life of Sayyidah Fatima and Sayyidina Ali and and develop ourselves as um, the spiritual nurturers of our husbands as well inshallah so Sayyidah Fatima she was hard working she struggled she was known for her modesty even inside the house she was known never to have shown her arms or even her hair um, within the confines of her own house and there's actually a, a dress style which is still worn today and you can buy these dresses which is known to be her style of dress and that this is what she wore and this style is ascribed to her and it's still very commonly worn in Oman um, and there are shops here which sell it and it's a house dress and it's in the butterfly style which means that it's just like two pieces of cloth sewn together with a space for the arms so it doesn't have separate arms sewn onto the body um, of the garment but it's all like one big piece with the holes for the arms to come through but long enough so that it covers the arms and the front seam actually falls down and just covers the top of the foot and then the back of the dress is quite long and it's probably about 30 centimeters or so which trails behind the dress like a little bit of a mini train so it's very big it's very billowy it's very good in this uh, gulf uh, heat um, of this region and that this is actually how a woman's dress should be inside and outside the house so the outer garment which is the abaya should also be like that where it covers the feet and it actually flows out and is longer at the back and then there's this issue of well what if you walking outside and you walk through some type of filth or dirt on a jasa how do we purify that and so there's actually a hadith on that which mentions that the back of the dress um, purifies um, what the front part might have uh, gone through or swept through on the ground of impurity so it's pure to pray in okay so when we talk about the rank with her father and also her uh, offspring the blessed Ahlul Bayt then we'll just mention this one event that again there are various narrations and Umm Salama the wife of the Prophet she said that one day the Prophet was in her house and Fatima came and he said to Fatima go and call your husband and your children so Umm Salama said that they arrived Sayyidina Ali and Hassan and Hussein and so she went into another room to go and pray and so the five of them the the family and the Prophet uh, they were in one room and they were sitting there eating together and then the Prophet he pulled his cloak around them so they call it a kisa which is like a covering or a cloak or a burda is another name and he covered uh, pulled the cloth around them and they were together under this and then this particular ayah uh, was revealed the ayah which is ayah number 33 in surah 33 uh, indeed Allah desires to remove all impurity from you O people of the household and to purify you thoroughly and so this particular ayah was uh, revealed when they were in that situation and it refers specifically that Sayyidina Ali and Sayyidina Fatima and their two children Hassan and Hussein are the people of the prophetic household and then Umm Salama says that she stuck her head out like where she was and then she saw that Prophet had 
uh, lifted his hands up and he made dua and he said, Oh Allah, these are the people of my house and those that are closest and most uh, special to me. So take away from them any impurity and purify them the best and the most complete uh, purification. And so she says that uh, she stuck her head out at that and then she said, Am I with you, O Rasulullah? Like, does that include me? And he said, Innaki ilal khair, innaki ilal khair. So, um, for you indeed, like, you know, there is a lot of good. And so he was in, including her in that statement. And then he was, he also said in one of his final gatherings um, with the Sahaba, he said, I've left behind two things for you. And if you hold on to them firmly, you will not go astray. And they are the Quran, the book of Allah and Itrati. And Itrati means his family or his offspring. Itar also means perfume, but it doesn't mean perfume in that sense. It means his offspring, those who have come after. And so when it comes to her passing away, then um, it's uh, narrated, and Sayyidah Aisha narrates this, that she saw the Prophet والسلام, uh, whisper to Sayyidah Fatima, and she saw that she cried. And then he whispered something else to her, and she laughed. And Sayyidah Aisha was very curious about this because she says that she wanted to know what he'd said and what secret he'd whispered to her because she had never seen a day in which sadness and joy were so close because it was literally immediately after each other. But Sayyidah Fatima, although she was questioned, she wouldn't say until after the Prophet had passed away. And when he had passed away, then she told what had happened and the Prophet had said to her that Jibreel always comes to me once a year in Ramadan and the Prophet would read the Quran to him and she said but this year he came twice so the Prophet he knew that his time his ajal so his appointed moment when he would pass on to the next life was coming and so she cried because she knew that her her father's perishing was imminent and then he told her that she would be the first of his family to follow him and that she would be the liege lady of the women of the worlds. And so she smiled with joy and laughed. And that was what Sayyidah Aisha had seen. SubhanAllah, she, she waited and she knew her time would come. And on the day of her death, she actually washed herself. Okay, <laughs> she did her own ghusl, her own washing of her of the dead although she wasn't dead yet subhanallah but she washed herself and a, a purificatory bath and she lay down to die and she passed away with um, her husband and her sons by her side and she was buried in the baqia in the cemetery in medina at night which was upon her request so that no one would know what her form looked like and she said she didn't want people to know how tall or short she was or the shape of her body this was her degree of modesty and she had mentioned this to Sayyidah Asma bin Umais who had been one of the women who had done the hijra to Habasha to Ethiopia and she when she came back to Medina she happened to tell Sayyidah Fatima one day about their um, funeral customs there, about the, the Ethiopian Christians. And she said that with the dead body, they cover it with palm fronds. And so like before it's laid in the ground. And so Sayyidah Fatima had said, I want that. When I go, I want to be covered like that. And so she was, and then she was also covered with uh, the cloak of the night. 
And so Sayyidina Ali laid her blessed body in her grave. And Sayyidina Abu Bakr, who was the Khalifa, uh, he led the funeral prayer upon her. And so she was the first, as the Prophet had said, the first of those of his household who would follow him. And indeed, it was a most a most sad and, and a miserable day for the people of Medina. SubhanAllah. But she, inshallah, is the leader of the women of Jannah. She's a leader of the women of this Ummah. And as we mentioned, what we need to do is look at her and her life and think, how do we connect to her? And how do we emulate her? So what is it in her story that we can take? What takeaways, what portions are there for us to think about and try and adopt in our own lives? Inshallah. May Allah be pleased with her. And may he raise us to be in her caravan, in those who follow her um, on the Day of Judgment, inshallah. So just very briefly, um, I just want to show you this book, um, Musnad of Fatima to Zahra, which has been put together by the great scholar uh, Jalaluddin As-Sayuti, who passed away in 9-11 Hijra, or 15-05 in the Gregorian calendar. And so a Musnad is actually a collection of all the hadith that are narrated by one particular companion. So you might have heard of the Musnad of um, uh, Imam Ahmad ibn Hanbal, um, and there are other ones as well. And basically they're, they're, they're uh, collections of all the hadith which come under the name of a Sahaba. So it said that Sayyidah Fatima narrated 18 hadith. In the Musnad of Ahmad ibn Hanbal, there are 10 hadith narrated by her. But also what Imam Sayyuti did was he didn't just put those 18 hadith in. He made a collection of every narration that he could find in which she was mentioned. His book actually has uh, 284 hadith about her and that includes all the repetitions um, of the different narrators and the different uh, narrations who discuss a lot of the topics um, about her in, in hadith. They, they're not all sahih, of course, there's all different degrees, classifications, some of them are sahih, like uh, the soundest narration, some of them are hasan, which is good, and some of them are daif, which is weak narrations, but they're all there collected um, in one place. So that makes it, that's a service the scholars have done. Now, one of the many services is to provide uh, for us collections so that it's easy for scholars and for lay people to come afterwards, depending on the topics, of course, to go to and, and to find these uh, narrations and hadith and stories and things that we need. So I just wanted to mention that because that's a little bit of the literature about Sayyidah Fatima, like the scholarly literature. And then, of course, there's a whole lot of uh, literary works as well. Just to finish up, we know that uh, Sayyidah Fatima, she accomplished her mission and what she was put here for, which is not only for herself and her soul to worship Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala and to fulfill that, but for her to be the prophetic exemplar for all women who've come after her. Um, she is the mother of the prophetic household and she was the pillar of strength for her beloved father and in her is the full manifestation of human perfection in the female form, just as in him is the full manifestation of humanity and perfection uh, for everyone. But she specifically came to teach us how to be women and how to be um, heavenly women whilst we're here in this lower realm before we go there, inshallah. We ask Allah to bless us with the guidance to emulate her 
in this very short life that we have and to be raised up to follow her in her caravan of women and that's on the day the the day of of Qiyama, the day of judgment when there will be a caller who calls out and he he orders everybody to lower your head and lower your gaze because the daughter of muhammad sayyidah fatima is passing by and going through to paradise and behind her will be a kokab a kokab which is like a caravan or an entourage or a group of women who will be following her and so she is the leader of them all and everybody will be ordered to lower their gaze so that she can walk through and she will have this group of women come behind her and they will all go to paradise and so we ask Allah to make us of those women to make us of those who are in her kokab and to remove from us in order that we might be with her any attachment to this dunya the filth of this dunya we ask Allah to remove that from our hearts from our eyes from our ears and from our limbs and from our tongues and to purify us to connect with her even if we don't share her her prophetic bloodline or her genealogy but to make us honorary members of the prophetic household through our love for her and our love for them and our attachment to them and our service to them inshallah and the ones who are alive with us in our time and those who we may be in the company of and have that blessing of or even those we don't know by emulating them and by being like them whether we know them or not and we ask Allah to to um, enable us to give service to to his beloved members of the prophetic household and to this deen inshallah wa sallallahu ala sayyidina muhammad wa alihi wa fatimat zahra khatimat banati sayyidil alameen alayhi wa alayha wa ba'liha wa waladiha wa sa'ir ahli baytiha salawatu rabbil alameen wa sallallahu ala sayyidina muhammad wa sallam alhamdulillahi rabbil alameen